Hello, welcome to this week's Sports Up show on Fresh Air with me, Peter Johnson, joined as usual by Alfie Steiner. This week we'll have the usual previewing uh, the coming uh, European and Premier League fixtures and reviewing what we've seen over the last seven days, uh, just as we do every week for you. But it would be remiss of us on a Scottish sports show not to begin this week by talking about Rangers winning the Scottish Premier League title for the first time since 2011. Stephen Gerrard in his third season with the club finally took them back to the pinnacle of the Scottish footballing pyramid. Uh, ended re- ended uh, Celtic's quest for 10 titles in a row in an incredibly impressive season that's seen them drop just eight points at this stage and concedes just 12 goals. And with um, a last 16 tie in the Europa League against Slavia Prague coming up this week, it could yet also be the most successful season in uh, European competition for several decades. Uh, so massive congratulations to Rangers, we must start by saying. But if you want to add anything to that, Alfie... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, you know, Stephen Stephen Gerrard's done. Uh, he's done very well to come into a club like Rangers, sort of fighting against the inevitable Celtic title triumph every year, year in year out. And I guess maybe you could say it's maybe. I mean, how much of it is down to to Rangers being excellent? I mean, probably you'd say that that would be the main reason. I don't think. I mean, I haven't been following too much, but I don't think Celtic have been anything particularly uh, special this season. I remember when they were, they relegated once or twice and lost all their great players. They were, I remember when I was first starting to become like a big football fan, Rangers were sort of the team um, in Scotland. They were playing in, in the Champions League. They were winning titles and then got into all sorts of difficulties. So it's great to see them sort of, uh, you know, finally get a, a league title under their belt and sort of make maybe Scottish football slightly more competitive and interesting and fair enough to Stephen Gerrard going in and, and making great change. Um, yeah, well, it was, I think it was last time they won the league that I believe they're in, uh, I've seen them being in Man United's group in the Champions League. So that's kind of, well, not just how far Rangers have fallen since then, but I suppose arguably Man United as well. Um, but, uh, and it's five years ago today as well, I think, since they were consigned to a third straight season in the Scottish Championship, climbing their way back up the football pyramid. So mm. it's, um, congratulations to them, it's great to see. Um, also, one of the bit of sporting news I just wanted to cover on a completely different note because I'm not seeing it covered in any media today is, uh, and we know I like my darts, it's that James Wade won his third UK Open yesterday, uh, beating Luke Humphries in the final, who was playing in his first televised, televised major and was schooled really by James Wade, who won his, his third UK Open crown. So that's all the, uh, the unusual stuff out of the way. And we'll plough on as usual with the Premier League. Now, there oh, were a few... talking about Scottish football on, a, on an Edinburgh sports show is unusual. <laughs> I know that's quite quite damning that on our part, isn't it? Really, but uh, we'll uh, we'll plough with our, our, our area of expertise. I think it's best to say, which is uh, the English Premier League south of the border. Um, and there were there were a lot of talking points this week. It's fair to say uh, we had the Manchester derby. We had Granite Xhaka. Well, just doing what Granite Xhaka does, which we'll talk about later. Um, but the one team that everybody's still talking about is, of course, Liverpool, um, who suffered their sixth, sixth successive home defeat for the first time in their history. Uh, it's their eighth straight home game without a victory in the league, having drawn to West Brom and Man United. Uh, then since lost to Burnley, Brighton, Man City, Everton, Chelsea and Fulham. Across those eight games, they scored just once in a 4-1 defeat to Liverpool. I mean, how do we even, what, what can we even say that we've not already said about Liverpool at the moment, really? Well, it just doesn't look like they're getting out of this rut. I mean, I'll take the example of, uh, I mean, fantasy football. A lot of people this week were saying, oh, you know, the fixture of Fulham's great. They're at home. You know, it's going to turn at some point. 
Liverpool can't keep going like this forever. So you keep Mo Salah in, who's been one of the, you know, like Liverpool, been the best player and arguably sort of the last three years, like Liverpool have team-wise. But there have been no signs that it's, you know, changing. I, I haven't seen... I mean, I can't remember the last time. I mean, bar maybe in Europe against Leipzig when they won 2-0. I haven't seen a sort of really um, complete, convincing performance from Liverpool. And yeah, they just don't create any chances and they look so vulnerable at the back. I mean, we've talked about that loads. So they will concede goals, but ordinarily they've been so good creating chances and scoring goals for fun. But I think in the last two games, their first shot on target has been in like 85th minute or something like that. Um, So there's some serious like disconnect and and that oh, just have some slight connection issues there um but we'll we'll, we'll plow on as normal um so just going back to to what i said just before about Liverpool having scored one goal in eight home games having got just two points in those eight games it can we've spoken on several occasions at great length about the defense but it, that does underline the fact that the attack is equally if not maybe more to blame for the defense because we have got the first choice likes of salah Firmino. Money playing and if you can't score you've got absolutely no hope of getting back into a game yeah and that's what I was I was trying to get at before my connection so rudely interrupted is that um, they I think in the previous two games their first shot on target has come in you know the 80th 85th minute they don't look like a team who know how to create openings you know those sorts of players that have we've been so accustomed to seeing you know score 20 30 goals in the past few seasons aren't getting the chances they look you know they're starved of service every time the ball does drop drop to them and they have a half chance they sort of snatch at it um it just looks like there there's no way of them getting out um of this rut or at least in a in a in an obvious sense because i'm just not seeing any signs on the pitch that things might turn i mean i know yeah i don't, I don't see i mean if they can't score any goals we know how vulnerable they are in defense um you know teams can just especially at Anfield I think I mean maybe their away form's been slightly more uh I mean less affected by their own form I mean to be fair they beat Sheffield United but that's not really too much to shout about but they just when when the impetus is on them to sort of do the attacking and and set the tone um teams just sit back and hit them on the counter because or they'll do something silly because that's what Liverpool are doing at the moment, which is crazy to think. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it's worrying from from a Liverpool perspective. Um, that well, Salah against we won't talk about the midweek round of games that we saw last week. Um, so we just had so much going on over the weekend. Um, but in the defeat against Chelsea, Salah was subbed off midway through the second half. Um, he's looked especially unsettled, him in particular, the last couple of matches. Um, which you know, he's kind of been a talisman over the last few, last few years, and it's getting to the point where he's getting pulled off the pitch. So it's uh, it just seems like if there was any kind of visible sign in terms of player mentality um, and body language that things weren't going right, then that would be it, I guess. Yeah, and I think you know not to go back to the the classic lacking of personnel, but you know big leaders have sort of been absent, um, like likes of Henderson. You know, in in his absence, it's normally Van Dyke. Milner's been injured in and out of the team. Um, and yeah, they just, yeah, I, I agree. They do look like their heads are down and they can't turn it. And we're so used to seeing them being, you know, encouraged by Klopp. I mean, I don't know. He's obviously suffered some, some a personal loss recently. So who knows how that might have affected him. But just everything seems to have like come together. And 
um, you know, there's a real negative sort of spiral going on at the moment and it doesn't look like Klopp is capable of dragging them out of it. I mean, he changed it up on at Fulham. He made like seven changes. Um, doesn't look like the players are going to, you know, get them out of it. I mean, he's been resting, rotating. Um, so I just don't really see what is going to change. I mean, maybe it will be a few players coming back from injury. Maybe it'll be changing the system and going back to basics. Obviously, Liverpool have been playing in such a like high tempo, high line sort of way. So it's a great success, but maybe at the moment they have to accept that that's not what they're capable of doing. Um, so it might be a case of changing principles, but I don't know if Klopp would do that. Well, I mean, you touched on it there um, about the, the the changes to that Fulham game. And I wonder, because we've seen Klopp kind of fall foul of this before, and it not maybe not in the last couple of seasons in the league, but certainly in cup competitions, um, where he tends to underestimate the opposition. And I wonder if he was maybe guilty of that slightly against Fulham, um, because, you know, you look at some of the names who were on the bench at the start of that game, or if it was just a case of him just desperately scrabbling to try and find something that works and just... You know, they've lost, that's what, they'd already gone seven games at home without winning. It was time to just try something quite radical. And it just... That's what it, that's what it looked like to me. I didn't know, I didn't know if it was, a, I don't think he can afford to, you know, um, rotate and rest players at the moment. I think he very much put out of that team because his strongest 11 wasn't working and he, he needed to try and change the energy or the, you know, the impetus and the, the way in which they were trying to, play and obviously Diogo Jota coming back in I think I didn't watch the game but I think you know they had a couple of decent chances where I think the Fulham keeper Ariola made a great save from Jota so maybe he could perhaps once he gets back to full fitness spark a bit of a, a comeback but yeah like you say I mean none of their players at the moment they seem to all being they're all being dragged into this sort of uh, abyss of uh, underperformance and I don't, yeah. I mean, maybe the Champions League is a sort of bit of respite for them. I mean, we saw, and this may be getting jumping too far ahead, but it gets a stage where I feel perhaps it isn't. Um, but in 2014 15, we saw Klopp. He'd won the league twice at Dortmund. He got them to the Champions League final. They found themselves, I think it was seventh or eighth in the Bundesliga. And he said he was going to walk at the end of the season. Now, he's been at Liverpool a similar amount of time now. He's won the Champions League, he's won the league. He's now finding himself down kind of, you know, seventh, eighth in the in the league, looking like European places under threat. How mm. close are we, do you, th- do you think, to us seeing him, you know, walking? Because that is becoming, with every bad result, becoming more and more of a possibility. Yeah, I mean, I guess you'd say, I mean, even right now, I'd say it's, it's probably next to impossible that they let go of Klopp right now or in the immediate future. But, you know, a month ago, you as you say, with every defeat, with every sign that they're just not improving... Maybe at some point you do need a, a change of direction or, you know, like you say, they've they've won the Champions League. They've won the league after so long not having that and and having these same players for the last three, four years. Either you, you know, you, you shake up the squad, which I don't think they're in a position to do necessarily because, you know, no one's got loads of money to throw around at the moment. And yeah, I mean, like you say, maybe it is a case of, of starting to consider, well, maybe if Klopp is not capable of pulling them out of this, then then who might be? Because we all know, you know, we look at Chelsea at the moment and if Liverpool were sort of, it's different because they've just won the league and Klopp has become, you know, arguably the most sort of, uh, you know, the, the most highly regarded manager in the world. But Chelsea sacked Lampard and then now they're basically, you know, it looks like they're pretty much favourites for the top four. If Liverpool were, 
you know, um, I mean, they must be really concerned that they're not going to qualify for the Champions League. But at the moment, you can't say with any confidence that Klopp's going to do that for them. I really thought they would. I thought they'd find a way out with Klopp. But, you know, there is an argument to suggest. And maybe, I don't know what Liverpool fans are thinking, but they must be thinking, well, if it's really desperate and we need a manager to come in for like 10, 15 games um, and sort of save our season and salvage it to get Champions League, then maybe that's what they do. But then, I don't know, you risk ripping something up that's so great and maybe it's just a case of refreshing it in the summer. I mean, what would you do? What would you be thinking if you're a Liverpool fan, do you think? Well, without twisting the knife too much, I did actually, just out of curiosity, look this up last night, um, the 2021 Premier League tables as of 1st of January 2021, which mm. puts Liverpool 17th with three wins, which is fewer than Sheffield United. Um, averaging less than point, less than a point a game from memory, it was like 0.9 points a game or something. Um, which if they carried on that current form, they wouldn't be able to reach Leicester's current points tally. Uh, Leicester are currently third. So if they carry on the way they're going, they can't even reach the points tally of the side currently in third. Relegation um, form, isn't it? And you think, well, no, no, it is exactly. Um, and it's it's a good job they just about you know managed to get to the level they did before Christmas, so they could afford this kind of slide um, to a certain extent. But I mean, that form is, I've never, I can't from memory, I remember when United won the league and had that horrendous season under Moyes, Leicester won the league and obviously never reached those heights again. But I don't think I've ever seen a championship winning team slip to that kind of form in my memory. I think, yeah, I think, you know, of all, the only managers really who'd probably survive that is Klopp and, and Guardiola in the Premier League at the moment, just because... You know, they've got the credentials, they've got the, you know, the concrete sort of success over the last few seasons to back it up. And in Liverpool's case, you know, I don't want to go back over the context of it all, but, you know, the lack of fans, all the incessant injuries, um, lack of pre-season, having, having won the league last year, you know, they, they've been relentless over the last few years. And maybe it is a case of sort of it all just catching up with them and, and Klopp's, you know, methods and the way the players respond to him sort of coming to an end of a cycle or needing a, a proper break to then go again. They haven't had a break. So I think Liverpool as a club, I mean, we've seen how smartly they've been run over the last few years. They will be considering all of this. And perhaps that's why there's no, no there's been no noise or, or anything to suggest that, you know, Klopp's job's under threat or, um, you know, there's, there's a serious shakeup needed. I think they're very much going with the idea that there's been, you know, far too many, like, uh, factors that have affected this form and it's not sort of like internally uh, you know it, it won't be like this forever when things return to normal with players and fans and the rest of it but it's worrying stuff I mean I do wonder to what extent because everyone's kind of talked over the last few years it was similar actually with with Leeds and the championship kind of when the intensity they showed or the energy they showed week in week out over over a you know what, what was essentially a 50-odd game season when you consider all the other cup, cup competitions and kind of how could they sustain that energy over so long? And then we saw with the lack of any substantial summer break as well, like we were, we were out of the previous season, basically straight into this one. And you just wonder if of all the teams who were adversely affected by that lack of a break, if if Liverpool were perhaps that team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you think of uh, the sort of, I mean, physical of course, the physical like drain of playing, you know, I think back to the season where City won the league by a point and Liverpool were excellent. And that's obviously the year they won the Champions League. The year before that, they lost out in the final. The year after that, obviously won the won the Premier League. 
with the, all the COVID stuff, but the physical, but then the the sort of like mental drain that that must sort of encompass, like working so hard to to win the title, being pretty much excellent season and losing out by one point, doing everything you can, winning, you know, first trophy in, in years, winning the first prem, like Premier League in 30 years. And then like, where is it? Where's your energy and like, like mental and physical resources coming from, especially at the moment when there's, there's next to nothing to sort of, galvanize the the mood and improve the sort of like determination i think the game state is it's just so stale in stadiums at the moment and we know how anfield like serves as a what they say like the 12th man or whatever um but yeah it just looks like they're they're exhausted um not just physically mm-hmm. but just in terms of every single resource so i think you know i'm i'm sure they'll be um if they can get through this period and somehow get into Europe or even not, I think they'll probably be sort of reflecting on this as a separate sort of freak uh, occasion and trying not to look back on it too much. But yeah, whether well, let's just another thing. We've uh, spent quite a lot of time kind of ripping into Liverpool, um, <laughs> not in a particularly kind of like trying to get out of them kind of way. But I think we spent quite a lot of time talking about Liverpool to come into yet another defeat. But let's just flip our attention to Fulham. On the other hand, obviously, came away 1-0 winners. Um, and after Newcastle and West Brom played out uh, an incredibly unremarkable 0-0 draw, um, they have dragged themselves right back into the mix. And they, in my opinion, having not seen a huge amount of the teams down that end of the league, they do seem a cut above the sides kind of around in and around them at the moment. Um, so, do you, I mean, personally, I fancy Fulham to stay up from here. I mean, I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, I was of the opinion that they'd be certain to go down along with West Brom and uh, and who is it at the bottom, Sheffield United, um, based on their pre-Christmas form. But they've really turned it around. I mean, there were signs that they were, you know, going to try and play decent football at the beginning of the season, and then quite quickly, I think they got exposed. And Scott Parker did some serious sort of, you know, uh, team changes, and I think there was a bit of a catastrophe. So it has been a case of like them making up ground. But they've been, you know, really quite impressive over the last few weeks. I think their results have been pretty, pretty impressive too. They've lost out narrowly to some of the bigger sides. Obviously, they've beaten Liverpool now. They're really unlucky not to get anything from the Spurs game um, mm. last week. And they had a, like a goal ruled out for a ridiculous sort of handball decision, in my opinion. Um, and yeah, I'd really like them to stay up because they're playing well. You know, they, 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 and no one gave them a shot really. And perhaps maybe they deserve it a bit more. Um, they look, you know, they look buoyant and determined. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, some of these coasting styles like Newcastle or maybe even Brighton, sort of Burnley, maybe uh, looking over their shoulder a bit more. Because Fulham look like actively sort of really wanting to to show that they're, they, they're, they're here to stay. Yeah, I mean, gone are the days really, kind of last time they were in the Premier League. Uh, for any great deal of time and they were kind of a side that I don't think anybody was particularly bothered to see go because they just kind of turned up every week and just tried to you know play for a point or whatever um, but they seem to be showing kind of the most initiative of all the teams down there like you talk about like the likes of Newcastle and Brighton just kind of sleepwalking um, yeah. but Scott Parker's really got on play and I remember right at the start of the season when everyone was saying there's not a chance of form staying up from here and I think they got off to like an even worse start than Sheffield United even Um but I mean, I think it's only a couple of players in the starting eleven of that Liverpool game who started the opening game of the season. Like, yeah, yeah, it's that good. Has changed a huge amount. 
yeah, it's like all the players sort of that were previously playing in the Premier League side or big part of the um, you know the promotion side last season aren't really you know playing at the moment. They, he's completely changed it in the in the sort of as the season's been going on. So it's all the more impressive that you know the consistency of their performances and you know the uh, yeah, it's hats off to them. And and I'm you know I like a, I like another sort of London side in as well because obviously Arsenal fan and you know I quite like Fulham as a club. Craven Cottage is great. Um, so yeah, I'm all four teams trying to stay up and playing good football. Um, so let's see. Okay, let's turn our attention to perhaps a fixture of the weekend, which was the Manchester derby at the Etihad Stadium. Now, we spoke last week, there were two, well, provided City beat uh, Wolves and United avoided defeat against Palace. There were two, which they both did. Um, both sides had a 21-match streak to protect. It was for City, it was consecutive wins. For United, it was uh, unbeaten away matches in the league. And I personally was fairly confident that it was going to be City's record that stayed intact. Yeah, um, are we all? <laughs> yeah, well, I was interested to find just because I was on. I went on a very, uh, um, I don't know. I was finding all the statistics yesterday, and I uncovered that it was the first time since two thousand and seven that Liverpool and Man City lost a home game on the same day. So, make of that what you will. Um, but on Sky, they described Man United's performance as the almost perfect performance. Kind of, if you're going to be City, then it's kind of the the archetypal way to do it. Um, what did you feel about it? I don't know if you saw it. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I watched it. Um, I thought from the first sort of 30 seconds, I mean, after Rashford looked like he was going to come off uh, with his back injury or shoulder injury or whatever, I loved the way that Rashford straight away drove into the box, Martial drove into the box, got the penalty. And that showed to me straight away that, 
United were really going to try and set the tone or be out the be out the blocks quicker than City, and they did that. Um, I thought that it was really impressive to see them go for it. I thought both the goals were sort of examples, obviously very different goals, but quite similar. Driving at City's box, not giving them a chance to sort of dictate proceedings and you know strangle the life out of the opponents, which is sort of what they do these days. Um, and I sort of thought afterwards, I was like, I mean, United for as much as they are slightly inconsistent sometimes, I genuinely think at the moment, maybe even over the last couple of months, they're probably the only team capable of of doing that to City based upon, you know, previous results. And, you know, the fact that Solskjaer's won, I think, all three times he's visited the Etihad, which is quite a remarkable uh, record. So, yeah, I thought it was a brilliant performance. Um, I thought City played some really good football at points. Um, maybe should have... You know, on another day they would have scored, but I think you deserve to win massively. I thought you were really good. Many people can, you know, keep a clean sheet against City, let alone score a couple of goals, give them loads of problems on the counter. So, yeah, credit where credit's due. This was a this was a big win, and I suppose a lot of people were surprised that it wasn't the other way around in terms of the twenty-one match um, streak being broken. Um, yeah. Well, Oli now. Um incredibly really, has a kind of a favourable record against Pep Guardiola and he's beaten Pep Guardiola more times than Guardiola's beaten him. Um, which you know, is, is quite incredible really, kind of all the managers who would kind of have this positive record against Guardiola. Ole's kind of kind of quite unassuming, baby-faced assassin all that. It's kind of, it's strange to me that he has kind of that tactical awareness and is adept to set his team up so well at the Etienne. I still can't get my head around the fact that you know he, he's clearly a better tactician than most people give him credit for. Yeah, and well, he was, you know, he was properly, he was, he was chewing the gum, uh, Alex Ferguson style as well throughout the game. But he did look, you know, he, he does sort of adopt quite a relaxed uh, look in games these days. And I've never, you know, I've never been necessarily too worried about him as a coach and, you know, as how maybe um, successful he might be with this United side. But he's shown on occasions that he he very much is capable of of drilling this United team, whether it's him or whether it's the, you know, the individual sort of quality of the players on their day. I think the, the main thing is sort of showing that they can do it on a consistent basis. I don't think, you know, the fact that United have had a pretty, really pretty remarkable record against City over the last couple of years is probably testament to a combination of, you know, getting the first win and then City now always slightly... I remember Guardiola really like worrying last season or I think it was the nil-nil this season. He It was the first game that he set up really to sort of just nullify United because you you really tore into them last year. So I think, you know, Solskjaer and United have shown they can... They really do have the upper hand on City sort of head-to-head. It's just, you know, obviously City can dominate over a stretch of a season more. Um, but yeah, Solskjaer is... Uh, I mean, I'm sure he's pretty pretty pleased to sort of silence some of his uh, perpetual critics because he they, he doesn't really get arrested a lot of the time, that man. Yeah, well, I hesitate to say this. I will put the question to you. I hesitate to suggest that it is some kind of inferiority complex, but we've seen City lose against United several times. In the, over the last two seasons, they've drawn one, lost three. We've seen a similar kind of thing in the Champions League where they seem to have some kind of mental block on it, which may or may not change this season. Do you think as a team they still do have some kind of inferiority complex sort of in these in these big games I do think no, like not not in in big game maybe the the sort of big occasion I think they've you know I'm sure if we look back at their record 
um, in big games that you regard as big games, I'm sure their record's pretty impressive. I think it's more when the occasion sort of comes, you know, like the Manchester derby, like a, you know, knockout <clears throat> game in the, in the Champions League, then, I don't know, maybe they just don't have the experience as a team um, with Guardiola as their manager or even in the past of sort of winning these these sort of crucial uh, games within the stretch of 90 minutes or 180 minutes. They're, they're a team who is based upon sort of winning over a period of time as opposed to maybe getting it right just in the 90 minutes on that occasion. I mean, yeah, and I do think, I mean, once they do do that, you know, whenever inevitably, or maybe not, they win the Champions League, then, you know, that, that spells worry for everyone else because then they can fall back on sort of that experience. But at the moment, you know, what have they got to look back on in the Champions League, for example, sort of failing at the same hurdle every year for the sort of similar reasons. When even in this United game, I don't know what you made of their lineup, but I couldn't, I thought it was quite interesting to see uh, Jesus, Mares, and Sterling start up top as opposed to having another you know, like Foden or, or Bernardo Silva sort of in there. Um, I don't know. It just seemed very, um, yeah, again, not like Guardiola overthinking it because, you know, all of those players could deserve to play in any game because they're so good. But I just thought City, what City have been doing so well recently has involved having that extra player who's more sort of creative or, you know, tricky like Foden or Bernardo Silva. And I thought they were lacking that um, against United. I mean, in fairness, it's not just a case of it being United and the fact that they've, they've not performed against them so well over the last couple of seasons. I mean, United are the, aside from City, according to the table anyway, the best team in the league. So if there's, if there's any team that City are going to set up slightly more defensively against, you would expect it to be United. No, that's um, true. But I, uh, you know, I do, I do take the point. There is... The, Certainly, well, the way Solskjaer plays or the way United have historically played, it just seems to strike some kind of fear or concern into, into Guardiola. And he, every time we seem to play them, he seems to have some kind of different different idea to try and stop them. And as yet, one of them is, is yet to work for him, but I'm sure it's only a matter of time, really. Um, just to put this kind of this, this one defeat for City in a wider context, um, I mean, it's unlikely it's going to send them a similar spiralling kind of fashion as Liverpool um, it's far more likely perhaps that it will be you know needed reminder that they are beatable um, especially in kind of these 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 big games where there's a lot at stake and maybe drive them to even greater heights in a season where they could still win four trophies so you never know it could end up being a, a bit of a reinvigoration that they needed Yeah I wouldn't be surprised to see them you know they've got Southampton on I think midweek this week so I wouldn't be surprised to sort of see them bounce back straight away I think Guardiola's always been very you know it's obvious through his team selections and the records and everything that he's very wary of Solskjaer's Man United team and he's very complimentary of them and he knows that this City team is still capable of being hurt you know by United or you know by a big European team sort of on a big occasion so you know I'm not Obviously, I'm surprised. I can't say, oh, I was expecting this. But, you know, with, with, with a view of hindsight and sort of how we've seen Guardiola and the City team respond to these sorts of challenges before, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they sort of go on a bit of a, a run or, you know, sort of use this for, for sort of motivation to, to really, you know, win the Premier League without giving anyone else a sniff because it will hurt. Yeah, it will. I agree. Um, and just to flip it back to United, 
Um, just to give before we move on, a special mention to to Luke Shaw, who mm. aside from Fernandez has definitely been United's shining light this season. Got his second ever Premier League goal yesterday. It was his first Premier League goal ever away from home. Right. Um, and it kind of got me thinking, especially when you look at the likes of um, some of his competition, maybe for the upcoming Euros. Um, if the Euros being delayed by a year has benefited anyone, I would hesitate to suggest that it's probably benefited Luke Shaw the most. Massively. I mean, up until about. I mean, basically up until Lampard was sacked, I was saying, well, you know, you think of who who's going to start a left-back. I mean, Ben Chilwell was probably the obvious answer. But Luke Shaw's form is, is impossible to ignore. He's looked, you know, defensively. I remember even against Arsenal, I sort of was impressed by some of the challenges he was making, even yesterday with some, but his attacking ability, the, the way he gets up the pitch... Um, he's created a ridiculous amount of chances recently, not just for a defender, but I think he ranks top over the last like five weeks for chances created. So, yeah, I think he's, I mean, maybe I'm forgetting someone who 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 is his competition, but I think he's surely his first choice at the moment for left-back spot. Although he hasn't had, he hasn't played for England for a while. So I think if he were to make, I think he's being called up to the squad um, or recalled to the squad um, in Southgate's next sort of set of friendlies. So I guess we'll see. Um, but he definitely deserves to, to be sort of in with a chance of starting, I guess, at the Euros. And like you say, massively benefited from uh, the sort of postponement of, of, of the competition. Yeah, I mean, I think there is an international break coming up in the next few weeks. Um, I think it's after we've got two legs in the Europa League round of 16 to come and then FA Cup round of fixtures for the team still in it and then we've got an international break. So it's not too far on the horizon. I just hope he doesn't end up getting kind of his annual injury that he seems to get. Um but we'll move on now to the next game, perhaps the one other game from last weekend that was really worth discussing. And discussing, obviously, one of us two has a has an invest, uh, a vested interest in it as well. And that was at Turf Moor. Uh, mm. Burnley against Arsenal. It was an incident-packed game. And um, there's plenty to, to, to dive into. I mean, it was a great start from Arsenal. Bernice Aubameyang put on one of the, very early on. But if there's one thing any Premier League follower knows, it's that that match was far from a done deal from Arsenal's perspective. And so it proved. Um, Xhaka... It was, eighth, was it his eighth mistake leading to goal thing? Which I think is his mo- the most of any player since his debut. Um, I mean, how, how do you even react to that anymore? Is it just resignation? Does it take you by surprise anymore? Um, no, no, it doesn't take me by surprise. I think that slightly may... The thing is, I, like, I'm not... I think it's just because where we are in the table, we're 10th and obviously right after the game, I was intensely frustrated. But I think just because we've dropped, I've, I've grown so so accustomed to seeing that sort of thing happen and knowing that we've dropped so many points this season from those sorts of errors already, I can sort of like put it to the side and think, well, I can see the things we're trying to do. You know, Xhaka, obviously it was really stupid, but, you know, I've seen him do that so many times over the last few last few months and it took to great effect a lot of the time. And I do, I like the philosophy of playing out from the back. And of course, it's just a shame it was Xhaka um, because obviously he's he's uh, he's got a bit of a history with that. But like you say, the 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 statistics and the errors leading to goals and the red cards and the you know, penalties conceded, Arsenal are top of the metrics, for, you know, throughout the Premier League for the last three seasons. So it is really damning our sort of efforts going forward because, I mean, really, we should have, we should have won this game um, you know, we should have been 2 0 up at least, sort of before Xhaka did a Xhaka. Um, and of course, I think we were really sort of wrongly denied a penalty um, in that sort of crazy sort of second half uh, period where 
there was red card shouts and penalty appeals and all sorts. But yeah, I mean, I'm very frustrated. That's, you know, we've got one point from a possible six against Burnley this season. Um, I mean, you could probably say that Xhaka was, was at fault for five of those points going amiss. But um, yeah, I guess the fact that we've got the Europa League this week and then the North London Derby at the weekend and then, you know, the second leg sort of, I'm already thinking about that. If we can't beat Burnley for whatever reason, then, you know, we can't beat Burnley. We don't deserve to beat Burnley. Um, but yeah, it's intensely frustrating. Yeah, we'll come on to both of those those uh, fixtures, the Europa League and the game against Spurs shortly. Um, there was just uh, one, other, one other part of that game specifically that I wanted to talk about, and that was... Um, the role of VAR, which you know had its moments on a couple of occasions, one with the the, the handball, uh, the overturning of um, sorry, there was one obvious handball that wasn't given as a penalty, and one that was originally awarded as a penalty and wasn't, and uh, Eric Peters originally sent off, then it was rescinded. Um, and I suppose from your point of view, VAR certainly picked its moment, didn't it, to uh, to come in useful because that's the kind of situation we've waited for for VAR to actually step in and make it meaningful positive intervention and it just so happened to be yeah in Burnley's favour. Uh, you know, rightly or wrongly very frustrated with sort of how things have been going of late. Um because, you know, there's been decisions, there's been, you know, the Louise red card, whether the rules are affecting us negatively, but we're just being punished so harshly by the by the finest of margins. Um this I mean look I mean, it was a great watch, sort of, you know, the, all these things happened. Basically, since Eric Peters came on, he sort of, you know, there was Pepe ball on the right and he sort of tried to dribble past him. There was a sort of half shout for a penalty. I mean, again, I don't know whether that's simply abiding by the rules, but that second one, I don't see how that was not a penalty. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, you, I think you know a bit more about, you know, the actual law at points, but, you know, Eric Peters' hand is out. I mean, I think they said it was because of proximity, but his hand is in an unnatural position and he stops Pepe from getting the ball to cross it in. Um, I don't know why that's not a penalty. When I see, you know, like the, the, the Spurs-Fulham game last week, and maybe it's a different sort of context, but the guy's hand is by his, like, by his side in a natural position and it's a goal is disallowed for him sort of making every effort not to have his hand out. And obviously it's really hard not to be sort of biased about it. Obviously, I thought that Eric Peters should have been sent off for very legally sort of blocking <laughs> blocking the goal late on. But, you know, it's just really like annoying that nothing was going our way in, in the sort of uh, VAR referee sense because I think Arsenal fans have sort of had a bit of enough of it recently. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right about it was a, it was a very different situation to the, the Spurs Fulham one. I mean, the Fulham one, the law was that if a hand, whether it's by his side, whether it's in the middle of the air, whatever, if it's at all involved in the build-up to a goal, then obviously the goal doesn't count. This one was a case of defending, handballing a defensive move rather than an attacking move. Yeah. Um, and I guess it was through his proximity, but on the back of that Fulham-Spurs game, we saw them change the law for the following season. So there'll be a different law in effect from um, June 2021 onwards. Um, so we've come into effect for the Euros. Um, and it's just, you know, there's, there's some, every single week, there's something, there's some incident and, some of the incidents, they change the law and it comes into effect immediately. In some situations, like after that Spurs form game, they change the law to come into effect from the start of next season. And it's just, it's so difficult to to keep track of now. I just, I honestly couldn't couldn't it's, tell you my thoughts on it. Really, it is. I mean, obviously, you know, people can complain about VAR and, but 
and and whether the referee is making the right decision. But surely it is just a case of, and I think that's what is maybe you know that's where you can really portion the blame to sort of the referees association, the the like lack of clarity or acceptance that maybe these handball rules given what laws or, you know, the effect that VAR has had on the the pre-existing handball rules, accepting that they really need to change and and not being sort of clear about that. Um, It is just a case of, you know, all these decisions being made, whether they're right, whether they're wrong, but it's because the law, uh, the laws about handball are clearly, I mean, weak or, or sort of really difficult to sort of consistently stick by. Um, So, yeah, I mean, of course, I'm saying that as, as a fan who feels aggrieved. But I think in general, you know, most teams have had that this season and we've seen how many handball incidents there are. So, you know, you'd like to think, like you say, I mean, they've, they've made some changes here and there, but, you know, no one wants to be talking about stupid handball decision when, you know, there's a sort of three points on the line. It should, yeah. That. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing with really, isn't it, with, with VAR? I mean, a lot of the decisions that are reached by, via VAR are less to do with, VAR itself and more to do with kind of these ridiculous laws that are already exist in. Um, so I think that's kind of the attention has more been drawn towards these bad laws um, that are just nonsensical and it's VAR that kind of takes the flack for it. Um, but we're seeing with kind of all the, how they're constantly updating all these stuff, handball and things like that, that there is a problem with, you know, the laws themselves. Um, hopefully they'll get it right one day. Um, just one final um, thing on the game itself that we'll move on to um, previewing the coming week, just the last few minutes. Um Burnley had won only just one of their last 10, so it's definitely an opportunity missed to keep the pressure on these European places. Um, but perhaps more concerning now is that you've kept one clean sheet in your last 11, which perhaps unsurprisingly was a nil-nil draw against Man United. Um, but just one clean sheet in the last 11 is um, cause of concern, isn't it? Yeah, and it sort of goes back to the thing I was saying earlier, you know, the mistakes that we've been making. I mean, we've been, if you, as an Arsenal fan, of course, I've been watching every game and I've sort of been relatively um, positive about the performances and, and feels if we maybe deserve more because, you know, the metrics are suggesting that in terms of expected goals and the quality of chances we're creating and, you know, lacking, I mean, um, sort of um, denying the opponents of, of, you know, obvious chances. But the thing that gets us, that lets us down is, is stupid mistakes, um, red cards, penalties, uh, giving the ball away, not concentrating. And honestly, I think, you know, in the last four or five games where we've dropped points or something like that, I'm pretty sure every single one of those has been uh, an opening that has come from, you know, our player giving the ball away or making a mistake. So, yeah, it's about clean sheets, but we've we've been pretty good defensively. It's just on a on a decision making sort of basis. Um, there's, I mean, we we're sort of it's really glaringly clear that we really need to sort of try and stamp that out because, you know, you think of. I think if we can't remember exactly what it was, but, you know, it's one of those things after the game. It's like if, you know, Xhaka hadn't done this or like if Louise wasn't sent off against Wolves or just, you know, sort of the games that were defined by fine margins and we were punished for, you know, we'd be sort of like fifth as opposed to 10th right now if we hadn't have made, you know, two of the mistakes that we had or hadn't have been punished for them so seriously. So I think, you know, I think this team are just really... uh, showing that you can't get away with being stupid, basically, which a lot of our players have it and their look is to be.
previewing the next seven days of, of action in the time we've got remaining. It is another Champions League week again. We've got the second legs of the first the first half of the um, round of 16 fixtures. So on Tuesday, we've got Dortmund against Sevilla. Dortmund taking into taking a 3-2 aggregate lead with the three away goals into that. And Porto visiting uh, Juventus, currently 2-1 up in aggregate. Um, so Juventus with the, with the one away goal to fight with there. Then on Wednesday... Um, the, perhaps the two that we should maybe talk about a little bit more. We've got Leipzig going to Anfield. Liverpool 2-0 up in aggregate, um, defending a, a, a 2-0 aggregate lead with two away goals. Um, and PSG have a 4-1 aggregate lead at home to Barcelona. Now, if we start with the one English team in action, and we've spoken a lot about Liverpool at the start of the show. Um, but, you know, the, we, we forget they are still in a, a very healthy position in the knockout stage of the Champions League before we start getting too negative about the Premier League season. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they are. And they, and they they did pretty well against Leipzig um, in the away leg. I mean, again, we're, we're going to see what they're like. This is a great opportunity, I think, for them to show that they can rise to the occasion, um, put in a strong performance at home ahead of, you know, I think they've got Wolves maybe at the weekend or something. But, you know, if... And not to sort of suggest that I think this might happen, but you know Leipzig will be pretty confident. I think that they can cause Liverpool some issues because they're travelling to Anfield. You know they haven't won Liverpool haven't won there in six, um, so it is a big game for Liverpool. I think just in terms of showing whether they are really capable of, of snapping out of this, because if they concede a two-goal like you know away aggregate score, um, they let that slip, then it's really sort of you know, showing that they are incapable of, yeah, of, of playing at the moment. So I think maybe the conversations about Liverpool really struggling will intensify a lot more if things don't go well on Tuesday. But like you say, they're in a good position. So let's see. 
I do kind of wonder if you're Liverpool, do you, when you're going into this Leipzig game, do you draw, do you take confidence from your previous success in the Champions League or do you draw on kind of all the negativity that's coming from the recent form in the Premier League? I think well, that, that maybe that's what Klopp will sort of be trying to trying to um, instill in his players the, the the refreshing sort of nature that it's a different competition. Um, you know, it's Europe. You're playing a European team. You've won there recently. You've got this history in the Champions League. I'm sure he'll be trying to suggest that it's a change from the champion. I mean, the Premier League at the moment. But you know, we've who knows whether Liverpool can sort of you know. Um, snap out of it and then come back. Um, I mean, I think last time they beat Leipzig, either side of that, I don't think they won in the league. So it does show that they can do it. Um, it's just a case of now whether they'll do it again at Anfield. Well, let's go to the the other, perhaps even tastier tie on Wednesday, even though the, the aggregate score in between the two teams is even greater, which is PSG against Barcelona. It is four years to the day since Barcelona beat PSG 6-1 to return a 4-0 uh, first leg defeat uh, 8th of March 2017 uh, Barcelona last night or yesterday they had uh, their presidential elections sound like a country with their presidential elections um, Joan Laporta won it he's previously uh, been the president of the club once uh, between 2003 and 2010 won 12 trophies including a treble under Pep Guardiola and he was also the man who brought Maldinho to the club um, so you know all things considered that's you know, some some calls for optimism there, but maybe it is a little bit too late to try and salvage the European campaign. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe people seeing that scoreline will obviously and rightly look to the, you know, the four years ago to the day or whatever. But obviously PSG were at home in that first leg. Barca were at home, so they didn't have the away goals sort of in their favour. Um, so, you know, Barcelona are going to have to go to uh, PSG and score what? three goals, four goals um, to sort of win the tie. And I just don't see it happening. Um, but who knows? I mean, it would be pretty, I think that's why we why we sort of watch these games because who knows which sort of big team are going to come out on top. I mean, more often than not recently, Barcelona sort of come out considerably worse off against, you know, the likes of PSG or Bayern Munich, Real Madrid even. So I don't have too much hope for them. Uh but, yeah, I mean, it's a strange one actually, um, because PSG nowadays, I mean, as, as opposed to four years ago, with the team who were probably favourites for this this tie going into it, kind of in the ascendancy with one former Southampton manager in Mauricio Pochettino, Ronald Koeman, another former Southampton manager, um, certainly on the face of it, not having quite the same amount of success, but Barcelona is still second in La Liga. Like, it's far from a, a shabby domestic campaign. PSG, I don't think, are even top of the French domestic league, um, mm. which is perhaps a little bit of a surprise. Um, so it's kind of easy to sit here and judge their, you know, the, the European form, but their domestic form does tell a different story. It's kind of strange how these things work. I think the main thing is that, uh, you know, the whole messy narrative in the summer the scandals going on behind the scenes at the club, the, you know, the news that they're in a billion pounds of debt, revenues down, you know, Barcelona is sort of consumed in this like serious slump of faith. And, uh, you know, they're, they're nowhere near the sort of as a, as a brand and as a, as a club, they're, they're really far away from where they have been basically, you know, over the last 15, 20 years. Um, but yeah, like you say, they're still second in the league. Messi, I think has, has got the most assists in Europe and nearly the most goals. Um, as you say, they're still in the Champions League. Um, 
they've got a final in the Spanish Cup coming up, I think. They can still put out a decent team every week. So I'm sure that the new president, well, you know, the guy who's just been re-elected, uh, what's his name, Laporta? Laporta, um, yeah. he he'll be hoping that sort of maybe before his term starts, they can sort of, you know, try and make something of this season because I think a lot of people have written it off for Barcelona but like you say it's it's not really the case when you look at the tables and, and where they are um, where it matters Well we'll just uh, look one below the Champions League and look at the, the Thursday European fixtures the Europa League which certainly I think perhaps um, are where we'll be looking this week um, Man United against AC Milan is well, without shadow without the tie of the round. We've got Olympiacos against Arsenal as usual. Um, Spurs still in the tournament. We've got Rangers playing uh, Slavia Prague. Now let's just start with Man United AC Milan, which seems ridiculous to be to be talking about that as the Europa League fixture. Quite frankly, um, United have been drawn against AC Milan five times in European competition. Um, they lost the first four ties actually, and when they last met in the 2010 Champions League, they finally broke the duck. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is a, a ludicrously big matchup for the Europa League round of 16, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I mean, it sort of shows where AC Milan are at the moment. I mean, I think they've they've sort of been a Europa League team, not unlike, you know, Arsenal over the last mm. few years. Uh, they really dropped down in the league and they've, they've been a lot better, I think, this season. Uh, I think Ibrahimovic has been a big part of that, obviously, but he'll be injured for this this leg um, yeah I think United should go into it pretty confidently to be honest I think they they are favourites I think AC Milan are probably a good team I don't watch them too much so I don't really know but I don't think that they are sort of what their name suggests you know historically I, I, I think they're a good team but not amazing um, well, it's, still, it's similar to United in the sense that they've had kind of a bit of slump last few years and they are gradually building the way back I mean this year may just be a little bit of an exception but they are currently um, second in Serie A, I believe. I mean, mm. Juventus just behind them have got a game in hand, and I think they're five points behind Inter Milan, who are top. Um, mm. So it's it's in some ways, you know, there are parallels to kind of United climbing back up the league, uh, but it'll certainly make for an interesting watch. They're certainly the one team I didn't want to see drawn against United. I was I really fancied kind of a Man United against Rangers kind of matchup, or <laughs> any one of the English teams against Rangers. I think it would have been fascinating viewing. Um, yeah. But we'll uh, it will be a a, a, a great two-legged tie to watch hopefully um, now let's turn to Olympiacos against Arsenal who are Olympiacos as we'd expect at the top of the Turkish Super League um, to all intents and purposes are having a pretty good domestic season um, from when I had a quick look yesterday um, in each of the five times this is completely random and this is probably no use to you whatsoever but in the five times that Arsenal have played against Olympiacos before in kind of the, the two the pairs of matches both sides have won one match each um, so I don't know if you can read too much or anything into that, um, but you know it may suggest that it's going to be quite quite a close tie. Yeah, I, I think given what happened last year, obviously they knocked us out in the round of thirty two last season, and we won the first leg one nil, and then they came back to the Emirates, beat us I think three two one three two on the night or something, and Bamiyang missed a really late sort of open goal, having drawn us back into the game, and then they scored really late on. So I think it's a really good opportunity to sort of put to bed that those fine margins. But then again, we are a team who can, you know, like like we saw in the Benfica ties, uh, you know, gift people goals. Um, I'm, I'm sure the team will be really nervous, but I'd really like to see us, you know, put the sort of 
anxiety to bed. Um, I'm sure Olympiacos are a good team. You know, Socrates is, is back there, um, playing his trade in Greece again. So we'll we'll see sort of how they fare. But again, I'm I'm feeling confident, and I hope that's not misplaced because we should be being a, t- t- a team like Olympiacos as we should have done last season. Well, it's just to just to finish and wrap up. That is just the first game in a pretty big week for us. It's fair to say, um, hosting Spurs at. It's the four thirty kick off on Sunday. I think I can see from your reaction there, you're not uh, overly chuffed about that. I mean, what, what's what's your thoughts going into it? Can we get I, out of you, maybe? I just really, really don't want to lose to to Spurs and Mourinho. Um, you know, the sort of I think this would be Arteta's third game in charge against Spurs. Obviously, we lost two 0 earlier in the season. We lost two one last season after Project Restart. Um, every time they sort of hit us on the counter, we've been sort of stale with the ball. So I'd really like to see a change in that. I mean, yeah, uh, it's weird because the North London derby of late has, not, or in, in recent times, COVID, or just because I don't know, we haven't been very good, has sort of uh, the, the significance of 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 hope and sort of you know, uh, it's, it's just a massive occasion for me this weekend. I really don't want to see Spurs sort of do a number on us and and that would probably give them what they need to qualify for the Champions League. And then, you know, the whole Mourinho dialogue and, oh, you know, they've made the right decision and look where they are, look where Arsenal are. So I really, I don't want to see a loss. I don't know if I'll make it into the podcast uh, next week (laughs) if Arsenal lose to Spurs, I have to be honest with you. I mean, it is kind of a, uh, we can gloss over it. I mean, Liverpool will probably have lost again, so we'll spend the first half of the show talking about that. Um, (laughs) But um, it is kind of a, a different different things at stake this this season in that it's not a case of one competing against each other to get in the Champions League. Both have had under past seasons, it's fair to say, and you would think realistically only one of the two can salvage their season by getting into Europe, whether that be through Champions League or Europa League. Um, so it's really a battle to just get anything out of this season, isn't it, really? Yeah, and I think, look, Spurs Spurs are a far better place than us at the moment, especially in terms of the league table. And, you know, they've been winning games and scoring lots of goals. And Arsenal have been playing quite well, but not scoring enough goals and, and you know, not winning games in the league, at least, or not been nearly consistent enough. Uh, I do think it's more, I mean, for me... I've sort of, as much as I want to climb the table this season, I've sort of written off the idea of us finishing well in the league. I just really want to see us like win against Spurs. And obviously that would do wonders for, you know, the the sort of short distances between teams in the league above us. But yeah, the sort of the, uh, the effect that that could have, you know, moving forwards would be, uh, well, for me at least really important. Well, we'll wait and see on that one. I hope that, um, for the for the sports hub show's sake, that um, Arsenal yeah, yeah, exactly. next Monday, and that your heart's <laughs> still still functioning properly. Um, <clears throat> so uh, yeah, I think we'll leave it there. The world of football was kind to us this week; gave us plenty to talk about. Um, so we've pretty much filled an hour. Um, so brilliant! Uh, thanks all for listening. Thanks all for joining me again. Uh, no we'll leave it there. See you next week. Bye bye.